Hello, everyone, and welcome to the February 15th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd's Karen and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that a county hospital providing care to an injured worker can sue the responsible party to enforce its lien rights. Here's what happened in the case of County of Santa Clara versus Javier Escobar. Jose Tinoco was a driver for Fresh Express when his negligence caused injury to Escobar. Escobar received one and a quarter million dollars of treatment for these injuries at Santa Clara Valley Medical Center, a hospital owned and operated by the County of Santa Clara. Escobar sued Tinoco and Fresh Express, where he got more than $5.5 million in a judgment. The county asserted a lien against this judgment, but Escobar's attorney contended after this judgment that the county was not entitled to the full amount of its bill, but only the amount equal to the workers' compensation fee schedule. For this reason, the defendant, Fresh Express, did not pay the county's lien. Instead, it delivered a check in the full amount of the lien payable to both the county and the worker's law firm. So the county filed suit to recover the full amount of its lien, and the trial court sustained the Fresh Express demur without leave to amend ruling that the county can no longer pursue its own action against Fresh Express, but must instead seek enforcement of the lien. But the Court of Appeal reversed in the published case of County of Santa Clara versus Javier Escobar and provided guidance on how lien rights are to be enforced. The trial court concluded in essence that once a county's lien has attached to a judgment, as it did here, the county's independent right of action ceases to exist. The trial court took the language of Government Code Section 23004.1 to mean, in essence, that a county's right of action continues only as a lien. But the Court of Appeal disagreed, noting that nothing in the language of this statute declares in definite words that the lien, once attached, is all that remains of the county's original right of action. The intent of the statute is best effectuated by providing counties with a straightforward remedy against the recalcitrant tortfeasor cum judgment creditor. The trial court erred by sustaining Fresh Express's demur and that the judgment predicated on that ruling must be reversed. The WCAB clarified the MPN access standards for primary treating physicians. Here's what happened in the panel decision of Soto versus Sombrello Packaging and the Zenith Insurance Company. Maria Soto injured her right shoulder, neck, and low back while employed as an assembler by Sambrello Packaging in Santa Maria. She was referred for treatment to Zenith's MPN in Santa Maria, the Central Coast Industrial Care. She then requested a referral from a primary treating physician to an orthopedic surgeon, and Central Coast referred her to two orthopedic specialists in Solvang but she claimed that although the MPN included nine orthopedic doctors, only one would treat backs. 
She then notified Zenith that the MPN did not meet the applicable access standards and she selected a non-MPN physician 70 miles away to treat her shoulder and back. But Zenith declined to authorize this treatment outside the MPN. Zenith contended that under the rural access standards, it had 46 physicians within 30 miles or 60 minutes who were fully qualified to act as a primary treating physician in this case. But the work comp judge held that Soto was entitled to obtain medical treatment outside the MPN, finding that the defendant's MPN was not in compliance with the access standards by not having three orthopedic specialists willing to treat the applicant within the geographical area. On reconsideration, however, the WCAB reversed in the panel decision. An injured worker must be able to select a primary treating physician who has the necessary specialization or expertise in treating her injury. But the labor code says that treatment by a specialist who is not a member of the MPN may be permitted if the MPN does not contain a physician who can provide the approved treatment. A search of Zenith's MPN physician showed 33 physicians within 30 miles who could treat her condition, which did, not, which did not require an orthopedic specialist. Soto's condition could be treated by physicians who wished to practice as a primary treating physician who were familiar with treating the type of injury at issue. Zenith showed that there are sufficient numbers of available physicians with specialties capable of providing applicants' primary care even if a physician within the specific specialty selected by applicant was unavailable. If applicant requires specialty medical treatment, applicant can be referred to specialist by her primary treating physician selected within the MPN. If that MPN specialist is not available within the access standards, only then may she then be referred to a non-NPN specialist. The WCAB has suspended the rights of a professional lien services hearing representative, Mike Traw, to appear in its courtrooms. Back in 2013, the work comp judge in the case of Trin versus Zhang Long USA Incorporated issued an order for costs and sanctions against Professional Lien Services Incorporated. The sanctions were imposed for bad faith and frivolous conduct in pursuing a trial on the issues of penalty and interest when it did not offer evidence adequate to meet its initial burden of proof. Neither PLS or its representative, Mike Traw, appealed the sanction order, which is now final and binding. The appeals board notified PLS in October 2013 that payment of the $1,000 court sanction was expected within 10 days and further advised that failure to pay was grounds for suspending the privilege of appearing before the WCAB. PLS replied that it was petitioning for reconsideration, but that was not the case. Thus, the unbanked panel decision concluded that PLS and Mr. Traw were willfully disobeying the sanction order. 
The failure to comply with an order to pay a sanction is an interference with the judicial process that provides good cause for suspending or removing the privilege of appearing before the WCAB. Therefore, last August, the WCAB gave them 90 days to show good cause why the suspension should not be imposed, and no response was received from Mike Traw, the hearing representative. A letter was received from Mark Blakely on the letterhead of PLS that stated that he acquired the company from prior owners and he requested a 60-day extension of the time, which was granted. He then requested a second 60-day extension, which was also granted, but no further response was received from Mr. Blakely or the company. Thus, the WCAB, sitting on banc, issued its decision, suspending the privilege of Mike Traw from appearing before the WCAB. And now our crime report. A Los Angeles physician has been sentenced to 30 years to life for her conviction for the illegal prescribing of pain pills. Her second-degree murder convictions last October was the first against a U.S. doctor for prescribing massive quantities of addictive and dangerous drugs to patients, three of whom died of overdoses. A jury of 10 women and two men found 45-year-old Su Ying Lisa Sang guilty of 23 counts, including 19 counts of unlawful prescribing of controlled substances. The guilty verdict marks the first time in the United States where a doctor was convicted of murder for overprescribing drugs. Sang was convicted of second-degree murder for the deaths of 28-year-old Vu Nguyen of Lake Forest, 24-year-old Stephen Ogley of Palm Desert, and 21-year-old Joseph Rovero, an Arizona State University student from San Ramon. Sang prescribed a myriad of drugs for the three young men who were her patients. Sang was licensed to practice medicine in 1997 and opened a storefront office in Roland Heights in 2005. Nine of her patients died in less than three years while she took in $5 million from her clinic and continued dispensing potent and addictive drugs. After her arrest, Sang surrendered her license to practice medicine in February 2012 and has been behind bars in lieu of $3 million bail. Now she has been sentenced to 30 years to life in prison for the overdose deaths in a case that could change how doctors prescribe medication. The 46-year-old mother of two wearing blue jail scrubs apologized to the families of her victims. The court said that she was a person who seemingly did not care about the lives of her patients in this case, but rather appeared more concerned about amassing several million dollars. Outside the courtroom, an attorney who represented Sang before the state medical board said Sang's prosecution has had a negative impact on physicians and patients who he claims are scared out of their minds. He also claims the pendulum has swung so far and that the people who need pain medication cannot now get it. Other medical experts have echoed his concerns since Sang was charged 
in 2012. The president of the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians said that when you use the word murder, it's going to have a chilling effect. He believes an aggressive medical board, not prosecutors, should go after reckless doctors. But, he added, any doctor who is prescribing pills knowing that they are being abused or diverted should not be called a doctor. And a medical doctor who served as the face of a sham Los Angeles clinic pleaded guilty to federal drug trafficking and money laundering charges connected to her illegal distribution of the powerful painkiller OxyContin. 64-year-old Dr. Madhu Garg of Glendora pleaded guilty to one count of illegally distributed oxycodon and one count of money laundering for transferring the proceeds of criminal activity to a Malaysian bank account. A sentencing hearing is set for May 26th. Garg faces a statutory maximum sentence of 30 years in federal prison. Garg was arrested in January 2015 along with the other operators of the now-defunct South Fork Medical Clinic in Los Angeles. A federal grand jury indictment charged seven defendants with conspiring to sell medically unnecessary prescriptions for drugs that included oxycodone and hydrocodone. As part of her guilty plea, Garg admitted that she issued prescriptions for those drugs to South Fork patients at the instructions of the owner of the clinic, John Gale Gillespie, and that she knew the patients did not actually need the drugs. Garg issued prescriptions for oxycodone and other drugs with codeine to undercover agents on eight occasions. Records maintained by the state of California show that Garg issued more than 10,000 prescriptions for controlled drugs over the year-long period that she worked at the clinic. Over the same time period, Garg received more than $300,000 in cash and transferred more than $90,000 to bank accounts held in Thailand and Malaysia. The conspirators also used Los Angeles as a base of operations to acquire and deliver bulk shipments of prescription drugs to Texas, and Garg continued to assist Gillespie in acquiring oxycodone from international wholesalers even after the Medical Board of California revoked Garg's license in December 2013. Previously in this case, five of the other defendants have pleaded guilty, including Gillespie, who was sentenced in November to six years in federal prison. One other defendant is pending trial, which is scheduled for later this year. And in regulatory news, the Division of Workers' Compensation has posted the agenda and background materials for the drug formulary public meetings. These public meetings are being held to solicit public input on issues relating to implementation of Assembly Bill 1124, which requires the adoption of a workers' comp drug formulary by July 1, 2017. The current agenda includes a presentation by Barbara Wynn, Senior Health Policy Analyst with the RAND Corporation. The DWC contracted with RAND to provide assistance in the design and implementation of the formulary. RAND Corporation is a nonprofit global policy think tank. RAND researchers will address key questions including how the drug formulary will be structured. 
What are the advantages and disadvantages of existing formularies that might be considered by California? What implementation policy should be considered to address the AB 1124 requirements and other important questions? The DWC will also gather and analyze information on potential formularies that other state work comp programs have adopted in implementing drug formularies. The audit unit of the DWC says it will be noticing more target audits in 2016 to address utilization review complaints. All claims administrators are required by law to have a utilization review program that is governed by written policies and procedures. UR should be used to decide whether or not a treatment recommendation by a PTP is medically necessary under evidence-based guidelines. And all UR programs must have a medical director. Any medical decision that modifies or denies a medical treatment request must be made by a reviewing physician and the services must be within that physician's scope of practice. The UR time limit for responding to a treatment request begins when the request for authorization is first received. The decision on an RFA submitted for prospective review must be made within five business days unless additional reasonable medical information is needed to make the decision. The additional information must be requested by the fifth business day, then up to 14 calendar days are allowed for making the decision. The penalties for failure to comply with the UR rules are set forth in the California Code of Regulations. For example, if an RFA is not answered, the mandatory penalty is $1,000 for each prospective review. There's also a $100 penalty for a late response to an RFA. If a non-physician delays, denies, or modifies a treatment request, there is a $25,000 penalty. The DWC memo reminds claims administrators to review the UR timeframes with their staff and UROs to ensure the crucial timeframes are being met. And the DWC has proposed a new MTUS guideline for mental health illness treatment. The Medical Treatment Utilization Schedule provides medical treatment guidelines for utilization review and an analytical framework for the evaluation and treatment of injured workers. It helps medical providers understand which evidence-based treatments have been effective in providing improved medical outcomes and guides the physicians involved in the UR and IMR process. In 2004, the legislature charged the DWC with adopting an MTUS that would be presumed correct on the issue of extent and scope of medical treatment. And it made the ACOM medical practice guidelines the standard until the adoption of the MTUS by the DWC. Thus, the ACOM guideline was a temporary solution. The MTUS was to be updated, improving upon the original ACOM edition. For example, the current version of the MTUS added new guidelines for chronic pain and post-surgical physical medicine treatment, topics not covered in the ACOM guideline. And continuing the effort, the DWC has now posted the proposed mental illness and stress guidelines. The proposed amendment to the regulations incorporate 
the official disability guidelines known as ODG, Mental Illness and Stress Guideline, with permission from the publisher. The new guideline is 582 pages long. By contrast, the ACOM guideline on mental health issues was extremely vague and terse. Later, the DWC will be updating all of the clinical topic medical treatment guidelines of the medical treatment utilization schedule. Once the online forums have been completed for each specific clinical topic, the DWC will combine all of the proposed regulatory updates into one rulemaking package. And in other news, the DWC has announced the winners of the 2016 Carrie Nevins Community Service Award. Both recipients are on the Commission on Health and Safety and Workers' Compensation. The Southern California recipient is Martin Brady, the school's insurance authority executive director. Christy Boma of Capital Connection President is the Northern California recipient. The awards will be presented at the upcoming 23rd Annual DWC Educational Conference Luncheons. Martin Brady is the Executive Director of the Schools Insurance Authority in Sacramento, where he has worked since 1998. He was appointed by the Governor to Cheswick in 2012 to represent employers. Over the course of his career, Mr. Brady has also served as a member of the California Joint Powers Authority, the California Coalition on Workers' Compensation, the Public Agency Risk Managers Association, the Public School Risk Institute, the Association of Governmental Risk Pools, and the Public Risk Management Association. Christy Boma is the president of Capital Connection in Sacramento. She was appointed by the governor to Cheswick in 2012 to represent labor. Ms. Boma has supported the California Professional Firefighters, the California School Employees Association Government Advocacy Team, the State Building and Construction Trades Council, and the Service Employees International Union on Special Legislative Projects. She is affiliated with the Institute of Government Advocates, the Leadership California Institute, and the CompScope Advisory Committee of the Workers' Compensation Research Institute. The DWC's 23rd Annual Educational Conference is the largest workers' compensation training in the state. Former workers' compensation judge Frank Lynn Kleeman passed away on February 5 at UCLA Ronald Reagan Medical Center of Cardiac Arrest. He was 82 years old. Judge Kleeman led an incredibly diverse life, serving in the U.S. Navy, the Air Force Reserve, and as a Los Angeles County Sheriff's Deputy. He went on to be an attorney in 1977, workers' compensation judge in the 1980s, and later an arbitrator. After moving to the Santa Clarita Valley, Judge Kleeman became actively involved in the community, supporting many organizations, including the Boys and Girls Club of Santa Clarita Valley, the College of the Canyons Foundation, the SCV Repertory Theater, and the Newhall Redevelopment Committee. He was board emeritus of the Pasadena Playhouse. He was named Santa Clarita Valley Man of the Year in 2002, and he was also named Philanthropist of the Year for the Network of California Community Colleges in 2002.
And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.